Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by ProTranscript.com. Well, today's episode of the podcast is going to be a rerun. I'm going to choose one of the most popular podcast episodes that I've done, and that is my first interview with Andy Zodin, and this was originally aired as podcast number 88. The reason why I'm doing this is... My wife went into labor two days ago on the 20th. Um, yeah, it was 20th uh, at night, about 8 or 9 uh, p.m., and she gave birth to our, our first child on Sunday, the 21st, around 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So needless to say, I'm a little busy. <laughs> and my, my wife and daughter are still at the hospital. She needed me to come home to grab a couple extra things for her. They're both doing great. And uh, I'm really proud of my wife, and uh, I'll be heading back to the hospital here in a couple minutes, but I haven't missed a, a Monday in, in two years, so I'm, I'm happy she needed me to come home to get some stuff so that I could re-release episode number 88 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get to the show. Thank you guys for your, your understanding and re-releasing this show, but it's really a great conversation, and several of you guys, I'm sure, probably haven't heard it before. You definitely need to check out the archives at EssentialTennis.com slash podcast. So much good content there. I was just scrolling through it, so go check it out. All right, let's go ahead and get down to business. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is Andy Zodin. Andy, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's, it's great to have you here. And Andy is the host of In the Tennis Zone, which is a local tennis radio show in Colorado. Andy also takes the audio from that show and puts it on iTunes as a podcast. I definitely recommend that. All of you listening, go check out the podcast on iTunes, even if you're not in the Colorado area. Andy has lots of excellent guests that he gets on his show. Some of the names that he's had recently are Rod Laver, Brad Gilbert, Billie Jean King, Justin G uh, Gimmelstab, just to name a few. And he's got a lot of podcast archives with interviews with tennis greats such as those. So really enjoyable show that you put on, Andy. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in tennis while that show is running. Tell us about your, your teaching background. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in tennis. Well, I am basically the director of tennis at a country club here in Denver, Ian, and uh, I do coach high school tennis as well, work with a lot of high-performance juniors. I grew up, uh, my tennis career started in Texas in the early 70s, taking lessons in Dallas. Uh, my first doubles partner was a guy named Craig Carden, who actually ended up becoming a pretty serious tour coach himself, worked with the likes of Martina Navratilova and uh, Lindsay Davenport, uh, was uh, coaching players that went to the semifinals or better at Wimbledon a number of times, 
and I was just lucky to be in a group of kids that all grew up to take tennis very seriously. I played at the University of Texas and uh, and began my coaching career in the early 80s in Texas and then moved to Colorado in 2001. So I've been coaching here ever since. I started doing the radio show a couple of years ago and uh, had kind of spun that off of having been a journalist. I did a lot of tennis writing. So I've been a coach. I've obviously continued playing as well. And now I've enjoyed doing the radio. And as you say, I've been fortunate enough to be able to, you know, through some great contacts in the sport, be able to get some really high-profile guests on in the tennis zone. And it's been uh, it's been a terrific experience. That's really cool. And you're really the perfect guest for the Essential Tennis Podcast because the listeners of this show are I typically describe them as crazy. <laughs> they, <laughs> That's perfect. It's yeah. right in. <laughs> they, they just have a passion for the game, and it's easy to, to hear by listening to you talk and, and talk about your experiences in tennis that you're obviously a lifer. This is something you've, you've been doing for your entire life. You love it. And as you keep going, you kind of take on more and more and get more into the sport and, and into teaching and coaching, and it's, it's really great to have you on the show. You're a perfect fit for us. Well, I appreciate it, and I think, like yourself, Ian, I think we all realize that as as local tennis pros and guys that aren't out on the tour and and big names on television, that it's important on a local level for us to continue to generate excitement and enthusiasm about the sport. You know, we went through a period of time where the sport kind of flattened out and was a little bit stagnant with respect to growth. And I think if if people like yourself and some of the things that I'm doing and Obviously, we're not the only two. There are a lot of guys around the country that are helping with this effort. But if we don't uh, get in the trenches and try to make sure that we keep tennis in the forefront of people's minds, then we are you know, certainly competing with a lot of other sports and a lot of other interests. And if we're going to maintain a good growth level, these are the kind of things that we have to do. So thanks to, what, you, know, thanks to you for what you're doing as well. Obviously, uh, taking the time that you're taking to, uh, to put on this show is, is a fantastic effort on your part. Well, thank you. And yeah, I'm doing my best. And I, I agree with, with many of us working at, at kind of grassroots type efforts like this to really build enthusiasm for the sport. I, I think it can continue to grow. And you're right, there's so much competition out there with, with other sports, especially for young kids these days. It's, it's tough to get them to stick with tennis, but I think stuff like this can help. And Absolutely. Speaking about speaking of uh, the modern game and how it's grown recently and and really advanced and at the professional level and, and I guess at the amateur level as well as far as how people are perceiving the the style of play and the style of play certainly has changed over the last twenty years or so. What Andy and I are going to be talking about today, and I, I'm curious to to pick Andy's brain about four specific topics having to do with the modern game. He and I are going to talk about a couple of specific elements that are usually um, associated with the modern game and, and how it's played over the last 10 or 15 years. And we're going to talk about whether or not these things are necessarily good for the average recreational type player to copy. And when, when we watch the pros on TV, the game is so fast these days, it's so powerful, so strong, and we're going to talk about a couple of those elements and whether or not we feel, whether or not, uh, and whether or not Andy feels, it's, it's good for you guys to be copying this. And both of us have a lot of teaching experience, and I'm, I'm curious to see how we line up as far as our opinions on these topics, Andy. But let's kick things off with the extreme grips, and specifically on the forehand side, the full Western grip and maybe even semi-Western. 
I'm curious what your thoughts are on, and, and let's let's keep things around maybe three five four zero level. Uh, you know, your your average level club player. Do you feel like copying the pros and what grips they're using in the modern game is a good thing for this level player? Well, I think it can be, but I don't think it. I don't think it needs to be forced. I'm I'm definitely considered by people that that know me to be a very conservative old school guy. With that said, I certainly won't uh, prevent a young player from being able to uh, ascend to the higher levels of the game. And I've coached a lot of kids that are playing Division One college tennis, and some that have even gone into the you know professional ranks and done pretty well. So uh, I'm not averse to that. But I think what you have to be careful with is forcing extreme grips and extreme swings on any player. And, and here's my philosophy: when I started playing tennis back in the early '70s. You could teach the average to slightly above average athlete to emulate the games being played by the top players in the world. You could teach an 11-year-old kid like me how to slice the ball on the backhand side like Ken Rosewall. You could teach kids how to go through the ball with a long finish and a long uh, time spent in the hitting zone with the racket head lining up towards the target like Jimmy Connors on his backhand. Um, because there was a lot of margin for error involved in those swings. If your timing wasn't impeccable, you could still come up with a decent shot. I think nowadays, if you try to teach uh, a young kid to, to take a swing at the forehand like a Rafael Nadal, or you try to teach you know, a little girl how to do what Serena and Venus Williams are doing, I think you're asking people to bite off a little bit more than they might be able to chew. And I think there's nothing wrong, especially when you consider the technology that we have now, to teach players to swing at the ball similarly to the way Chris Everett did, similarly to the way Rod Laver did and some of the guys in the old days. You, you couple that type of fundamental soundness with today's technology, and you're still able to play a very strong, very reliable game that probably has a tendency to keep you a little more injury-free than what I'm seeing kids try to do these days. I see a lot of pros that are taking kids from the age of six, seven, eight years old and teaching them that real, real severe over-the-shoulder finish with that extreme forehand grip, and I think it's kind of an all-or-nothing proposition. I think you have kids and adults that have problems dealing with low balls. I think you have uh, a problem converting over to the ability to, to, to play the net with those extreme forehand grips. I think you obviously have to move the grip over very sharply to learn how to hit a, you know, a proper serve. And I just think that there is a lot to be done exactly right to be able to master using that grip. And so if a kid comes out and he holds that racket in a, in a semi-Western or a Western grip and he's hitting the ball clean and he's hitting it consistently, able to hit targets, nothing hurts at the end of a session, then I say, you know, maybe this kid is a natural for using this grip. But to go out and to absolutely, you know, take a group of, you know, 10 or 12 kids in a camp and say, okay, we're all going to hit extreme Western forehand grips. I think that's where some mistakes are being made, and I think it's being taken too for granted that just because the top players in the world are doing this right now, that that means it's designed for everybody to play that way. I think there needs to be a little bit more of a separation based on athletic ability as to whether you're going to teach a person to play a game that's eventually designed to be played on the tour versus a guy that's just designed to be a good 4 5 5 player for the rest of his life. Lots of good stuff in there, Andy. And uh, yeah, I agree. I, I definitely see pros who who take both extremes. I, I've seen pros who 
you, you use you use the term old school. I've seen pros who are very old school and kind of are still grasping onto their their thoughts of how the game uh, you know used to be played uh, and very classic and and that can be good for some students. But I, I agree with you that I think where pros really get themselves into trouble and get their students into trouble is is when they take one style of play or one way to swing the racket and they make every one of their students do it the same way whether it it happens to be really old school or really modern or or some something in between or or whatever i think you're right different people have different bodies they have different athletic abilities and so you know just like we see on tour different types of games different types of swings there's certainly similarities but even among the recreational player, it's it's not it's not cut and dry. Everybody's got different amounts of talents, and their their body works in in different ways from other players. So, so I'm curious: Have you ever actually instructed a, a student to to go to a full western, something as extreme as an actual full western? You know, I I would say probably not, Ian. What I've pro- what I would say I've probably done is I've allowed them to keep it. <laughs> you know, okay. if it was something that was already working for them. Then I would say, you know, for instance, there's a kid that I'm working with now who's uh, just about to turn 15. He's 14 years old and um, top 100 player in the country in the 14s, real good little high school player now. And when he was 8 or 9 years old and he had that full Western grip, I didn't bother messing with it because so many of the balls that he was hitting were like eye height or higher. So he really almost had to grip the racket that way. And people said to me, well, eventually, you know, he's going to have to do this, that, and the other. And I said, well, eventually we will, you know, when he grows. But what I was more concerned with at the time was that he was learning how to win. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that's a skill that when it can be grasped, you let the kid grasp it. it you know, once they've learned how to win, once they have, have programmed their mind on what to do in a certain situation, to me, that's like internal problem solving that's yeah. a skill that goes beyond the tennis court so i said while this kid's doing well in the 10 and unders and in the 12 and unders and learning how to win game changes can then readily be made based on the fact that as an 8 9 10 year old kid this kid has established a lot of confidence in himself to be able to get the job done however need be now he turns 11 12 13 years old we start sending them off to Nick Bollettieri's academy for a week here and there, and, and doing some high performance training at certain USTA national camps where they can really spend the amount of time necessary. You know, for me to see the kid a, an hour or two or three a week doesn't allow for me to make a grip change like it does for him to go to Bollettieri's and spend six eight hours a day on the tennis court for a week straight. And then he comes home a week later with with a slightly different forehand, one that I would have converted him over to anyway, and now his forehand is, is going to be able to take him to whatever level uh, his game is able to take him. I mean, I, I, I certainly expect for this kid, barring any you know unforeseen health situations or what have you, injuries, to be able to be a scholarship Division One level player. And we changed his game incrementally. Um, I allowed that what that extreme Western grip, but I also knew that the kid had phenomenal hands and was going to be a terrific volleyer, and I didn't want anything to happen to prevent that. So I was hoping that we would move that grip over a little bit to be able to do a little bit more with it, a little bit more variety, and that's exactly how it's evolved. Uh, you know, and it takes you know a lot of different sources to be able to build a player's game these days. I don't put it all upon myself, and I don't think any pro should. I think if you've got other resources to have all sort of contribute 
to the development of a player. I think that's all part of the modern game as well, is realizing that one pro doesn't necessarily have all the answers, and I would certainly be the first to admit that I don't. All right, good stuff, Andy. Let's go ahead and move on to our second topic, which has to do with different forehand follow-throughs, and the two most popular recently have been the um, the windshield wiper follow-through and the reverse follow-through. Reverse follow-through being the one that Nadal has kind of really made popular, finishing on the same side of his body, and windshield wiper finishing on the opposite side of the body, but low, down by the hip, uh, just to give our listeners uh, some uh, guidance there in case they're not exactly sure what I'm talking about. But what what is your opinion on those two techniques and how they relate to the recreational player? I think it's something that you have to be real careful with, Ian, because one of the things that those two swings do not promote is an extended follow-through toward the target. And again, as we discussed a little bit earlier, I think that margin for error in your game is something that you need to have if you're not an exceptionally, supremely gifted player. And when I say exceptionally and extremely gifted, I'm talking about a kid that's a nationally ranked player. I mean, if you're even, you know, now maybe the better sexually ranked players, but normally they're nationally ranked as well, you want to give yourself good margin for error. If you're not out on the tennis court four or five hours a day, every day, you want to make sure that you are coming through the hitting zone and giving yourself an extended finish toward your target. So, to me, let's start with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the windshield wiper finish coming across the body. I think if that happens too prematurely, and if a player comes off the ball a little bit too early, you're going to have a lot of shanked and frame balls, as opposed to allowing the racket head to go through the hitting zone and letting that swing evolve into something that then eventually finishes back around to the other side through racket head speed that's generated through the confidence of getting better and better and more and more experienced. I think a lot of times pros nowadays seem to want to put the cart before the horse a little bit, and they immediately want people to come either finish over the shoulder or over the, the opposite hip like you were describing, and I don't think that that promotes the racket spending enough time in the hitting zone to give yourself that margin for error to follow through towards your target. If you're giving yourself the extra length going forward through the swing, I feel like if you just are a little slightly off with your timing, you can still have a good result uh, because the racket is traveling in the proper direction that it needs to go to create the proper direction with that shot. If you're not absolutely perfect with the timing of the strike point when you're coming up over the shoulder or over the hip or with a reverse follow through like Nadal, then you're going to just have a lot of mishits and it's really tough to develop any sense of confidence because you just don't have a lot of consistency and reliability. To me, the essence of the sport and the way it was originally designed to be played was that you learn how to maintain a rally. You learn how to keep the ball in play. You learn how to hit the ball back and forth with somebody consistently. And then once you've mastered that skill, then you go to adding the bells and whistles adding the weapons. I think nowadays with the modern game, we go right to the weapons and we skip the whole step of the ability to just hit a nice clean ball back and forth, maintain a rally 10, 12, 14, 16, 20 times. And I think that's that's where we're missing a lot in the development of our players. And that's why I think in this country, to a large extent, people are scratching their heads as to why are the Americans falling 
behind with respect to the development of our players. I think we're going for too much too early. We're such an immediate gratification uh, type of society, and I think that that shows up in our game styles with our tennis players. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to actually make a social connection there between how people are so infatuated with the you know the power game being able to hit the ball fast and hard and with a lot of topspin and actually making that connection with kind of what our society is like here in America you're talking about immediate gratification etc and we all of us grew up playing on on fast hard courts, uh, whereas over in Europe, there's a lot of clay court play and, and people have to learn how to develop points and actually get into a rally and be patient. And exactly. there's such a lack of, of patience here. And I, I feel like, and especially the players who are, who are out there, and I, I deal, because of my website, I, Andy, I deal with a lot of players who don't have the money for instruction and, and they're looking for it, they're looking for guidance and and how to hit the ball and how to improve their game, and so much of the instruction out there on the internet is you know learn how Roger Federer hits his forehand or you know how uh, Andy Roddick hits his serve and it's all all this extremely advanced uh, theory and technique, and we're talking about 3.0 you know beginner level level players who are reading this and buying this and, and trying to implement it and buying the cart before the horse, I think is a good way of, of describing it. You used that phrase earlier. And yeah, I, I think so many recreational players and beginner players are, they're seeing what's happening on TV and so many people without a lot of experience figure, well, you know, look at that. They're not making it look that difficult. It can't be that tough. And they go out and, and try to actually copy what they're seeing. And that, that can be really frustrating for the player and really frustrating for the pro as well when they come in and try to change those those misperceptions that that's how they're supposed to be swinging. Well, and I think that, you know, there's an old saying, Ian, uh, sex sells. And <laughs> Roger Federer's forehand is sexy. So is Andy Roddick's serve, yeah. right? So when you look at it from that, that standpoint, if you want to sell somebody something, whether it's what they need, what they want, or what's realistic for them, a lot of times people don't care. I mean, they just say, hey, sure. listen, you know, people are going to see a you know, picture of Andy Roddick serving. They're going to gravitate toward it. You know, they're going to see, uh, you know, one of the best backhands in the world, uh, or they're going to see, you know, Serena Williams take this ball out of the air from three-quarters deep in the court and hit a <laughs> wicked swinging volley and think, well, this is what, this is what people need to, to try to emulate. And the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, uh, probably I would say 75% of all the people that are playing tennis in this country will never in their wildest dreams hit a tennis ball like that. Right. Now, with that said, there are certain things that I think can be taken from some of the best players of all time that I think are universally applicable to the average club player or, you know, even slightly better. Watch Andre Agassi line up to hit his forehand and the way he uses his left arm and he extends it almost at, you know, let's say a 45-degree angle across his body. That's something that you can teach any player to do, no matter how they grip the racket on the forehand side, and it's going to help give them a better forehand. And that's something that you can look at and study in the pro game, and you can say, well, what is it that makes it, you know, such a difference for, for Agassi to do that? Well, you're creating distance between your body and the ball that is going to give you a consistent contact point. 
number one. You're going to give yourself better balance just by getting that left arm. If you watch somebody on a surfboard, they kind of look the way Agassi did when he lined up to hit his forehand. And you're going to have just great alignment. You know, one of the subjects that I know we were going to talk about was the open stance. And if you're going to have an open stance, that doesn't mean that your stance is open from the waist up. It's open from the waist down. But you still got you still got to turn your upper body to line yourself up properly. So if you want to look at Rafael Nadal's finish on his forehand, that may not be necessarily something that you want to copy unless you're supremely talented. But I don't care if you're a 2-5 player or a 5-0 player. You're going to want to do what Agassi did in lining up a forehand because I think that's one of those fundamentals that is truly a fundamental and not just a, a preference in trying to emulate one of the top players of all time. So I've got a question for you then, sure. Andy, and I like how you're describing the, the difference between something that every pro does and, and, and every good, solid upper-level player has done for decades and decades, such as good you know, rotation with the upper, upper body, as you're describing with Agassi, and as opposed to some of the more modern things that only extremely, extremely talented athletes are doing, how do we, how do we tell um, and how do our listeners know the difference between something that is, uh, and this is why I called my website Essential Tennis, because this is kind of my teaching style, is, is I, I find what's fundamental and what has to be done in order to, to, to be a solid player, and I start with that, as opposed to the, uh, the more flashy, uh, you know, upper-level type stuff that we see on TV. But how can listeners know what to, what to work on that's solid, what's fundamental, what's essential, and what is beyond their, their grasp, if not for the future, at least definitely in starting off? How, how can our listeners tell the difference between those two things? Well, I think it, it, it's definitely a very fine line, and a guy that lives here in Denver by the name of John Benson, who was a phenomenal tennis coach and tennis player in his own right, used to say, there's a very fine line between fundamentals and preferences. And a lot of times pros try to take their preferences and impart those as as fundamentals when they're not necessarily the case. I think I think when it comes down to it, you want to consult a pro locally and you want to sort of throw a couple of different options on the table and see what they have to say. Um, I think as far as some of the basic fundamentals that you would be able to get your, your listeners to really be able to, to gravitate toward and, and be able to really trust and believe in, obviously working on your balance on your feet. A lot of times you've got people who you'll see them swing and they're somehow or another, they're, they're, all their weight is on their back foot and they've lifted their left leg to hit that forehand. You know, one of the best uh, tips that I ever got in my golf game is something that I've been able to teach my tennis players and that was even an equal weight distribution between my two feet. When, of course, I had time to get that. And I think when you're talking about 3-0 and 3-5 players, a lot of times the pace of the ball that they hit allows people, if they take the time and use the proper footwork to get their feet set and to get their balance proper, I think that has a lot to do with hitting the ball well. A lot of times the guy will come to me and say, I can't hit a backhand. And I'll look at the footwork and I'll see, you know, nothing happening <laughs> a lot of times. Or I'll see improper steps, stepping with the wrong foot, finishing with the wrong foot. And if they just get their footwork cleaned up and in sync with their swing releases, all of a sudden, it's not that they had a bad swing. It's just that the footwork that went into lining up that ball was improper. Uh, let's say they're a right-handed player and they're moving to their to their left to hit a backhand. And the final step that they take to that backhand is a left-footed is a left-footed you know, step to the ball and they end up opening up their stance drastically, 
you know, obviously that's not going to necessarily be something that's going to give them proper balance and align them with the court. If we can just say, okay, we need to just make sure that that last step taken to the ball is a right-footed step, bring it to the ball and hold still, um, you know, you're going to clean up your alignment and probably be a lot more accurate and still be able to generate plenty of power. Certainly with the technology of the rackets these days, that's what they're designed to do. I think, obviously, uh, making sure that you're, you're quick on your feet and that you're making lots of short little steps, kind of like little dance steps as opposed to these big Frankenstein long steps to the <laughs> ball, that's going to be something that's going to help any player out there. Um, as far as the serve is concerned, making sure that you're standing up real nice and straight and after you release your toss, you continue to let your toss arm extend. I call it a toss and stretch. You know, you see people that sort of toss the ball up and then their arm just immediately drops. Their their body sort of jagnized forward. They bend at the waist a little bit and wonder why every serve is going in the net. Well, you know, there's a reason for that. There's no There's no proper posture. So there are certain things that when I think about all the different lessons that I give to all the different levels of players, that no matter who I'm with, there are just certain things that I think as I said before, are sort of universally applicable and, you know, footwork, balance, um, posture, those kinds of things, making sure that you're stepping into the ball with the proper foot. I'm still an old school guy that I'm not anti-open stance, but I think if you've got time to close your stance and step to the ball with the foot furthest from the ball, you're always going to be able to bring a little bit more, you know, body power and strength to the shot, and you're also going to have better alignment in hitting the shot. If you don't have time and you've got to go open stanced and you do it properly, obviously with the pace of the balls being hit these days, there's no way around that. But I don't think you want to necessarily always have an open stance shot, even when you have time to close that stance. Well, Andy, in typical Essential Tennis Podcast fashion, we've only gotten to half of the topics that we were hoping to. <laughs> and, Sorry uh, to be so long-winded. No, I apologize. No, this happens virtually every show. And when I outline a show for myself or when I have guests, almost always we don't get to as much as we're hoping to. But but what what we did get to, I think, will be extremely helpful. And in closing, just for the the two topics that we did go over the the full Western or semi Western grip, the the different forehand follow throughs. I'm going to ask you uh, one at a time if you feel their preference or fundamental. Uh, just to wrap up, so full Western grip is that preference or is that fundamental? Absolutely a preference. No and windshield wiper follow through or reverse follow through on the forehand side is that a preference or fundamental? That's definitely a preference as well. Um, you know the other the others are old school. I think you know when you start talking about well, I intend to play professional tennis then. You know your your fundamentals are going to become a little bit more extreme as weapons mm-hmm. become more important. But as far as the development of a game that's reliable, that will have a tendency to keep you you know injury free, uh, I think that the fundamentals are a nice long hitting zone coming through with a clean contact point, um, which doesn't necessarily include the uh, the reverse you know follow through or the you know the the you know the the windshield wipe to follow through or the open stance. Again, I'm not anti those things, and if you're able to do it and they feel good, then then go with it. But as far as it being something that you absolutely have to do to become a good tennis player, uh, I, I definitely don't believe that. Well, Andy, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking to you. I've, en- I've enjoyed it very much. And before we wrap things up, I've already told people to go to iTunes to check out your podcast there. 
Where can people find you on the web? What's what's your website address? The website is tenniszone fifteen ten, all one word, no spaces. Tenniszone fifteen ten dot com, and that's the website, which is basically the best of in the tennis zone. And uh, as you had mentioned, we have Rod Laver on there. In the last month of the show, we had Rod Laver, we had Brett Stolle, Tony Traver, Brad Gilbert a couple of times. We had Darren Cahill, Justin Gimmelstab. We had. Uh, we were very fortunate. Owen Davidson is a dear friend of mine, and he was on several times. Uh, and they are just really phenomenal. And it's funny because I talk to them about a lot, of, a lot of these very subjects. Being, you know, having, uh, you know, been around as long as they have and seeing the evolution. I'm 48 years old. These guys make me look like I've been playing tennis two weeks with respect <laughs> to the experience that they've got. And uh, and so we talk about some of these very same subjects. And and to hear. Uh, some of the stories on, on you know some of the matches that were played back in their day is uh, is really fascinating. So I appreciate you uh, uh, you know letting your listeners know about about that website and about my show. And I look forward to having you come on in the tennis zone when we start season number three uh, in February. I would enjoy that very much, and uh, I look forward to that. Um, but yeah, definitely check it out, everybody. And I've listened to several of your most recent episodes, and you do a great job of doing the interviews. And you know you can't help as as being a, a tennis fan like myself and everybody listening really can't help but be interested in and really uh really keyed in on on guys like uh like like the people that you have on the show so it's a, it's an excellent show um a lot of fun yeah well andy thanks very much it's been great having you on you, Ian. and i look forward to talking to you again maybe we can have you back and talk about the other two topics that we had on the table Anytime you need me, I'm, uh, I would enjoy doing it, and I appreciate you uh, and all that you're doing as well, and I enjoyed it very much. Ian. All right, that brings today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast to a close, episode number 106. Thank you guys very much for being patient with me. <laughs> I hope you guys didn't mind that I uh, re-released a show for today's episode. I'll be heading back to the hospital here in just a couple minutes after I pack some stuff in the car. And uh, one shout-out I want to give today is for my great members of the forums at EssentialTennis.com who have been really supportive of me. I really appreciate you guys so much, and I appreciate your your warm wishes and congratulations uh, to myself and my wife and my daughter this weekend. I, I really enjoy working with you guys and, and participating with you guys on the website, and uh, thank you guys so much for your support. All right, that's going to do it for this, this week's show. Thank you very much for joining me. Take care this week, and good luck with your tennis. 